Startup Grind Columbus is a monthly event to educate and inspire entrepreneurs. We actively live Startup Grind's global community values of give first, help others, and make friends. Startup Grind Columbus is made possible by our lead partners, AWH, builders of exceptional digital products that drive business for growth companies and Rev1 Ventures. Visit startupgrind.com slash Columbus to see a list of upcoming events and to see videos from our past events. Now, on to this month's event podcast. Okay, we're going to get started. You, uh, Even though we have microphones, you're not going to hear anything like from a speaker perspective because the room isn't wired for that. It's yeah, you're not going to hear anything. We're just recording this to go with the video for posting it online. So you're not going to hear um, like, you know, Kevin's booming voice um, through some speakers. So thank you all for coming. This is Startup Grind. We get together once a month to have an hour long fireside chat with someone who's important to the startup ecosystem an entrepreneur, an investor, an advisor, accelerator person. In this case, you know, Kevin sort of checks all the boxes um, as part of that description. So, yeah. Uh, please help me welcome Kevin, by the way, since he's already here. Um, Hello, everyone. So, have some sponsors to thank. Uh, Daryl, I think I saw Daryl walk in, even though he didn't bother to come over and say hi to me. Hi, Daryl. Daryl King Memory. It is, it, and it's also not um, walking and door friendly. Um, apparently, it's like a treasure hunt to get back here. So, appreciate everybody persevering and getting down the hallway. We wanted to prop open doors, and they said if we propped open doors, the fire department was going to come and take us to jail. So, we decided that it was a better option not to prop open doors. It would. Caitlin from our team would have totally gone to jail to prop open the doors, but I did. I didn't want to have to be inconvenienced and go bail her out and go to the ATM and get money out of the bank. <laughs> So, Caitlin and Robin, thank you for, for helping check people in and getting people back here. I also need to thank uh, Mike from Heartland Bank. Um, Heartland Bank's been a longtime sponsor and supporter of Startup Grind. So, if you need um, you know some um, help from a banking perspective, please uh, talk to Mike. GBQ is also a sponsor. Tax, audit, fraud um, from those guys. So, if you need some of those things, um, talk to me and I can connect you to somebody at GBQ. And then AWH, my firm, we're a digital products firm. We help clients build uh, great digital products and to become better digital product companies. And so if you need that sort of thing, grab me. Or you can talk to my partner, Chris, who's in the back, um, or Caitlin or Robin, who you met when you, when you came in. So without further ado, let's get into it. And so Kevin has um, – most of you are probably lured here by some you know fintech hashtag thing talking about is – you know, FinTech 71 with the new accelerator and and what the heck is FinTech and is Columbus, a, uh, and why is Columbus a FinTech place? So let's um, let's start there and then we'll sort of weave in the financial guard stuff, if that's okay. No, that sounds great, Ryan. Um, so um, how do you sort of think is, how do you sort of think about FinTech and, and what is FinTech as sort of a category um, in and of itself and why does it need its own category? Yeah. So, you know, as I think about fintech, you know, it's basic nomenclature, financial technology. How many people work for a bank, financial services company today? Heartland. So you all have technology within your financial services company. And most of the products that you're putting out are either to consumers or they're to businesses. The one aspect of banking, insurance, financial services is most of this technology hasn't been updated in 20 years. So you either have multiple systems, band-aided approach, and normally a really non-transparent, not a really cool user experience. So when I think about financial technology or fintech, it started out as taking all of the different inefficiencies of the traditional financial service sector and saying, we can do it better. Startup companies can do it better. So, you know, take Financial Guard, which is the robo-advisor that I was the CEO and chairman of. We looked at the investment advice process. So most people, when they need to get investment advice, they go and go to Edward Jones or go to JP Morgan and say, I need a financial advisor. That financial advisor isn't really being completely unbiased. They're not providing transparency in how they're making money. And they're really not helping the individual get better at investing. So you look at those three problems, you're like, okay, can technology make this better? 
And that's what we did. We said, can we build some technology to provide a completely unbiased and transparent solution to investment advice? And can we make the people more financially literate while we're doing it? And so that spurred the robo-advisor industry. Are we doing anything different than a traditional human advisor? No, we're giving investment advice. We're just doing it in a fully digital and automated manner where they don't have to sit down with the human being. And so that's one example, but there are multiple segments of fintech now. So you have insure tech, you have payment tech. You know, Apple Pay is an example of fintech. Can you get life insurance through an app? Like normally you have to call up an agent and similar to robo-advising, not very transparent and it's not a really cool experience. And I think most people, you know, it's driven by millennials, but you know, people who are 40, 50 years old are comfortable with technology now. Why not give them products and services within the banking world that are very digital and mobile friendly? And that's to me is fintech just taking all of the banking and financial services and making it more efficient, transparent, and giving the consumer a better experience. Where do we draw the line of what is fintech or not fintech, or does it even matter? So is, is Bitcoin fintech? Bitcoin is fintech. So I'll give you, so fintech 71, we took a lot of time looking at this, Ryan, and we broke it down into eight different segments. And then within those eight segments, there is a number of sub-segments. So you can have personal financial management, which is like robo-advising. You have institutional investing. You have payments. You have cryptocurrency. You can have insure tech, reg tech, regulatory technology, blockchain. So all of these different sectors make up fintech. And you know, for those of you in financial services, just think about every component of your business and there should be some automation and technology to it if they're not is they're not today try to remove paper completely that's that's what fintech is i think as you start thinking about you know has fintech gotten a little too broad it may and it might be a, a hype word because that happens when you have some big companies growing and transforming and disrupting industries but right now i think you know it's it's everything that a a financial services company does today, but just doing it in an automated fashion. Well, we're pretty good as a, a species to overhype things. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So um, it's not surprising that fintech has blown up to be probably more representative of a bar broader group than it was initially intended to represent. Mm -hmm. um, so over time, it'll probably begin to sort of um, call its way back down to a, a center, um, if it even matters, right? Some of these things around labels, I'm not sure that they even matter that much. If somebody wants to call themselves, you know, a fintech company, I'm not sure it ultimately matters, right? In, unless it matters to their investors and their board and the people that are involved. But, you know, other than that, I'm not sure that it really matters that much. You, you know, I think the hype is created because of how large the market is. When you think of, when we were doing robo-advising, the market that we were looking at was into the 15, 16 trillion dollars in assets under management. So that's an enormous market, which brings a lot of hype, a lot of VC dollars and a lot of hype to it. If you think- So if, how much of that 15 to 16 trillion did you guys tap into with Financial Guard? Like, yeah. know, like 10 or 11 of it? Yeah, so I can give you the, the broader robo-advisor industry. We, the broader robo-advisor industry of the startups never got above 30 billion. So we were, this is sort of like the first inning of a nine inning baseball game. And, you know, Financial Guard was one of the pioneers. We were one of the first three to five that came out of the gate back in 2013 and 14 timeframe. Now, a lot of the traditional financial services companies, so the Charles Schwab's, the Vanguard's, the Fidelities, they now have robo-advisors. So, and the ones that didn't choose to build themselves decided to buy robo-advisors like Financial Guard. And so what we did was, you know, not all of us became the next Fidelity, but we did transform the industry to say, you can't do it the way you're doing it. It's not beneficial to the consumer. And if you choose to keep doing it that way, you're probably not going to be successful 10 years from now. And so they've pivoted and transformed and added a robo solution. So, that, you know, you start looking at it. That's probably one of the biggest accomplishments. Did we become the next JP Morgan of Fidelity? No. 
when I started, did I have a vision like we can be enormous? Yes. And if you don't have that, you're probably not going to be successful. You need to have that vision of what we're trying to do. But I look back now after some, I was like, wow, we transformed this enormous industry that really didn't change for the last 30 to 50 years. So how did you see the opportunity to do financial garden, to do robo-advising? What, mm-hmm. what got you to that point of seeing that the opportunity was there? Yeah, so I came from a banking background, so had been at a, a large bank for 13 years. And after doing my MBA, I'd always wanted to build a company. You don't really get to do that in a big 300,000-person financial institution. So initially, I was looking at different areas of financial services where I thought there was sort of inefficiencies and anomalies. You know, initially it was foreign exchange I was looking at and doing a lot of research on. And then I got hooked up with uh, this gentleman, Kerry Jenkins, through a professor I had at Ohio State who said, there's this entrepreneur who just sold a company on the actuarial side of the business. So nothing to do with robo-advising. And we just started talking and we started talking about investment advice. And I had never done retail investment advice, but I knew a ton about it. And I knew all of the the hidden ways the banks made money and sort of the inefficiencies. And we started just, you know, talking it through. And initially it was like, all right, let's just build a technology to show the consumer like where they're leaking all this money in fees, financial guard. You know, we want to guard you against the industry. And then as we were developing, it's like... That must have gone over really well. Yeah, I know. Ex-banker trying to disrupt an industry like that. Let me tell you everything I know about <laughs> these, the institutional... Oh, yeah. But, but someone's got to do it. And, it, you know, if I didn't do it, someone else was going to do it. Well, right. That's some, sometimes that's what disruption is, right? Is oh, someone yeah. that understands the mechanisms of a currently fault, flawed process and that exposes those and removes those, sometimes that's fundamentally what disruption is. That, that is exactly true. And that, that's, that's where we improve and transform. You know, it's just seeing something and saying, okay, someone is, is, not, is being taken advantage of. And in this case, it was the consumer. And you, I always use the comparison, like when I was talking to clients was, and this is institutional clients as we started selling into that, where, you know, you say robo-advisor, most people are like, what are you talking about? Because they've never heard of that before. I was like, think about 15 years ago with travel agents. You know, initially you went to a travel agent to book a hotel and a flight. And I don't know, most people look my age. So it, it seems normal to just go on Orbitz and Expedia now. But back then, there was none of that. So you called the travel agent and they just booked it for you. You didn't really know if that was the best hotel. You didn't really know if that was the best flight. You didn't know how much the travel agent made. All of this like black box. And it was the same analogy for investment advice. If you look at it, you know, 15, 20 years later, the investment advice industry was the exact same way. And so that was an industry where most people can now get all of their travel done just through the internet. Without, if I'm going to book a trip to, you know, I just went to Italy with my family for two weeks, I had a travel agent because it was more complex and, you know, I just wanted to take things off my hands. But if I'm just going to book a trip to New York or South Beach, I'm just online and knocking it out. And we just looked at that and said, why can't we do this with investment advice? It's the, it's the exact same analogy. And you can do this across a thousand different industries. So it's funny that the two um, domestic locations that you mentioned were New York and South Beach. How often do you go to South Beach? Uh, I don't, but oh, okay. I, it seems like a really cool was place it, w- to go. I do go so to New York because I'm from there. Okay. So South Beach was just aspirational. Yes, you'd, exactly. You go to New York. You'd also like to go to South Beach. Yeah, I'm living in a landlocked state right now. Anywhere where there's ocean is aspirational. Gotcha. <laughs> As you um, think back on Financial Guard, um, so you saw the opportunity. What did you have to make work for the company to work? What were the what were the couple of pillars? Because there's always a couple of sort of yep. core pieces that if you get it right, you at least give yourself a shot to be successful. And if you miss on these things, you have no chance of success. Yeah. It, one of the first aspects, and this isn't really the exciting aspect of building a business, but early on, I had a lot of knowledge about the regulatory environment, which 
in fintech, if you're thinking about a really cool thing to do in fintech, you have to understand this is like one of the most regulated industries in America. And I spent probably two to three months looking into the entire regulatory environment. And as we were building our initial product, we built it with that in mind. And fast forward four years, the reason why we were able to sell and to a big publicly traded company was because we were, we were almost a great compliance solution for them as well, which we did not build it with any compliance in mind other than we just have to be compliant with the regs. But they looked at it and said, wow, this is, this is an amazing compliance solution for all of our human advisors as we turned them into hybrid advisors. So, you know, regulatory was a big thing and then getting the right team. Anytime you, you do a startup, I think the people aspect of it is so important. And you're venturing into, at least for us, we were venturing into an industry and almost creating a sub-industry in robo-advising. And you're explaining it to people and saying, hey, I got this amazing idea that is potentially going to transform this multi-billion, multi-trillion dollar industry. Are you on board? And getting people to believe is, I think, the single most difficult thing to do. So how do you do that? How do you get people to believe? How do you get people to, I've, especially in the vision that is very intangible and seems as crazy, you know, to and, and as likely to not work as it is to work, if not, you know, frankly, you know, a 99% chance that it's not going to work. Yep. Yeah, you know, I, I used to say the same thing, and I was hiring a lot of young people, and uh, so you I just went for young, naive people. No, no, I, I literally was as, as <laughs> truthful and transparent as possible. I said, I, I used to make a lot of money at the bank and I'm doing a startup now. So I'm betting on myself. So if you want to come along for this ride, here's the deal. I think this is going to be a huge success or we may strike out. But no matter what, you're going to learn a ton. And you may choose to do this again. And if not, I will help you get a traditional financial services job because I had a lot of contacts in that. And that well played. And that, that literally was the pitch. And most people, after I, you know, I, I was so passionate about this, once I spoke to them and laid out the vision and explained, you know, what the market is and where we're going to take the market, you know, people bought in. And once you get that buy in and you have multiple people who are passionate, it's hard to stop a team like that. And it's, you know, I think it's the team that really drives a lot of success in a startup. So you had, you, you were here, but you also had an office and an operation in, in Salt Lake City. I did. How, how did that come to be and what happened here and what happened there? And, and yep. how, how did you end up sort of dual located? So uh, myself and Kerry were based in Ohio to start. And we had our first developer who is our chief operating officer, lead developer, was in Salt Lake City. So he worked part-time for us early on, just like you know most people who are doing startups, you, you have that part-time tech resource. The only difference is he never left his full-time job. Out of all of the people we had, he was the one person that, he was older, he was in his 50s, and he never had taken a risk like that in his life. So this was something he's like, I will contribute 20, 25 hours. Damn, dude, you just said people in their 50s are older. <laughs> Age discrimination. I'm so sorry. My wife is in HR too. She'll kill me. <laughs> but uh, so he started in Utah. And uh, I don't know if any of you have been to Salt Lake City. It is this really neat tech startup ecosystem where they call it Silicon Slopes. So for me, it was so easy to hire really high caliber tech talent out in Utah. And we had this gentleman out there so we continue to hire our tech talent in Salt Lake City and all the other aspects of the business we were hiring here in Columbus so I sat here my first full-time hire was a chief product officer who I pulled out of the MBA program at Ohio State and then I brought on a, a controller a client service professional salespeople and we started building out here so all of your business functions predominantly were here and our technology was in Salt Lake City. And, uh, you know, we had roots in Salt Lake City. That's where we initially incorporated and our investors were there. So, you know, we, there was a reason we were there as well. Did you start it to intend to sell it and ultimately have an exit or 
did you intend to grow it and make it as big as you could and whatever happened down the road was going to happen down the road? Uh, initially, we were just growing it and we wanted to just build this brand. And, you know, we thought we were going to be the next big, like, Edward Jones or Fidelity. L literally, that's, we're like, we can knock them off because our product is so much better. And we're going to expose them for everything that they do that's not really the right thing. And every American should come to us. Literally, that's what we thought. And, it, but it's funny, before we launched. I feel like there's like a make, a make America Great Again joke yeah. in there somewhere. <laughs> but I'm not going to say it. Yeah, no, it's it. like you have these aspirational visions. But, you know, deep down, I'm, I'm a pretty pragmatic business person. And I remember sitting in a board meeting and one of the gentlemen who was very seasoned had built and sold a couple of companies like Kevin. So this is right before we were launching. He's like, so if we launch and we get rapid adoption and this really starts transforming the industry, like you believe it is, what's going to happen? And I remember sitting there and I'm chairing the board and I'm like, what is probably going to happen? He's like, let's look at JP Morgan Chase, where I came from. I go, Mary Erdos runs their asset and wealth management and we're doing you know, investment advice for $15 a month, and they're charging percentage of assets and making hundreds of millions, billions of dollars in this. And so she's gonna show up and Jamie's gonna say, what's this robo-advisor thing that's eating away at our business? And she's gonna be like, yeah, they're, they're really starting to take clients. We can just completely shut them down. We just have to lower our fees 90%. And he's gonna literally turn and say, keep this cash cow going and just buy them and put them on a shelf. And I, I still remember saying that. And that doesn't mean someone is not going to follow us and disrupt, but that's the best way to do it. Or, you know, buy it and bring it into our business so we become somewhat of a robo. And then we have a human as well, the, which is their traditional. And so many board meetings later, as we were talking about potentially raising more money, you know, that same gentleman was like, Kevin, remember what you said if we start getting a lot of adoption and people start talking about this? And we were going to raise a lot of money like all of my robo-advisor peers were doing. He's like, why would we make it hard to get acquired if that's what the end game is looking like? Because people are going to have to make build-or-buy decisions. So he was then saying, if we go raise this next round of big dollars, it's going to make it harder for us to get acquired? Exactly. So, so in the 2014-2015 timeframe, there was like five of us who were getting a lot of hype in the media and written about. And one of, like in the Silicon Valley world, when you're getting hype, it's go get a big valuation and raise a ton of money. So one of my peers went out and raised $50 million, had a couple of hundred million dollar valuation, then the New York counterpart, you know, because you can't get outdone, goes and raises $60 million. And the, these companies have now raised 200 plus million, you know, each one of them. And there's a few others that have raised, you know, over 100 million. So you start getting to that level, your valuations, half a billion, 700 million, it gets crazy quickly. And for a bank to acquire someone who has a post money valuation of 700 million, that means it's a billion plus acquisition. And unless you have revenue to back up a billion plus acquisition, most banks are not gonna do that. Whereas if you raise a smaller amount of money and you your valuation is much less, it's a bite-sized acquisition, which it's a win for the investors, it's a win for the team, and your technology gets adopted wide scale much quicker than if you're just standalone. And that, that was our vision after, it wasn't initially, but probably after the first 18 months to two years, as we saw the market developing, we took a, a very, very sort of business-oriented strategic approach of the market and tried to envision what the, the end game was going to be. Because trying to raise money to compete with Charles Schwab or Vanguard, that's a very, very difficult thing to do. And you you pretty much are just, you're in this VC raising game in order to compete. So how did the sale come about? So the sale came about and, you know, it, it was a long process, but we had gotten inbound interest from two really large financial service brands about a year before we sold. 
And at that point, you know, we we went out, did the meeting, started thinking about, wow, we we actually have something that could be acquired. And it was, in my view, it was so early stage. I was thinking, even if we were to get acquired, this is going to be five years down the road, not a, a couple of years after going to market. And so we started looking at investment bankers to assist us with that. Uh, I went out and spoke to a few on both coasts. We wound up hiring KPMG. To uh, and they they were looking at the market and they sort of reiterated what our thoughts were was like this is a perfect time to get acquired and at that time when we were looking at bankers one of the robo advisors that I thought we had a superior product to got acquired by BlackRock which is the largest global asset manager in the world and I was like we are we are definitely acquirable because they just got taken out and so we hired KPMG went out to uh, about 30 financial services companies, 14 of them decided to sign NDAs and take a look at us. And uh, we wound up uh, choosing Leg Mason in the end, which was a really fantastic partner for where we wanted to take the technology. They wanted to invest in it. They were gonna open up global distribution. All the things that, you know, as a startup uh, CEO, you're always wanting is like, you're going to give me access and distribution and you're going to be behind us. Beautiful. And so, uh, expense account. God, this is going to yeah. be awesome. <laughs> yeah. I'm not, I'm not going to be just I can eat at Hyde park now and not Wendy's. Yeah. We, we don't have to pack three people in a hotel room anymore. <laughs> yeah. So it was, uh, from the time we hired the bankers, which was September and going through road shows and diligence, we wound up not officially announcing until June of last year. And then the regulators had to approve. That's still pretty fast. Yeah, less than a year. In, in relative terms. Yeah, no, it was, uh, and I've learned that now. But from when you're a very small shop. When you're in it, it probably seemed like eternity, right? Yes, yes. It's uh, going through diligence, and especially in a regulated industry with a publicly traded organization, is very, very stressful. Especially when, you know, I'm sure if you're on the other side, when you're like, I have 10 internal lawyers and I have a compliance department and my CFO has everything, it, it gets a little bit easier because everyone has a role. But when you're a really small organization, you don't want the entire team to know that you're selling because that would just shut down your business. You become the only person doing everything. Me and one other person in the organization. So for nine months, we were trying to do our day jobs, which is grow financial guard, while we're in this really high stress sales process, which was, it's, it was insane. So let's talk about the stress piece, because it's something that every entrepreneur deals with. So the fundamental stress of just starting it, trying to grow it, and then the additional stress of trying to go through um, the, the sale, how did you deal with it? What were your sort of strategies and techniques for not going crazy, building the company, and then through the acquisition? Yeah, I think any startup, you're going to have stress. And I think personally, and this is my mom and my wife telling me, they, they both tell me that I thrive in a stressful environment. So the more I have on my plate, the more organized and structured I get. So I guess from a individual uh, personality. I'm cut out to do this again and again. Uh, it works. So yeah, no, it, it, it works. I don't, I don't mind stress, and I'm a, a pretty optimistic person, so no matter how bad it got or, wow, are we going to make payroll next month type deal, I was always like, yeah, it's going to be fine. Like, I believe in this. It's all going to work. And so I was always optimistic and stress didn't really bother me too much. But I think you need a, a support system, whether that's mentors or friends to sort of lift you up. My wife was always very supportive of me. And uh, I, I sort of had a rule because you, you wind up working nonstop when you're, you know, doing a startup. At like six o'clock every day, I would try to leave the office and go home, have dinner with my family, coach my kids in sports. And then at nine o'clock after they went to bed, I'd start it up again. So, you know, you couldn't do that every day, but as much as possible, I would try to carve out three hours and just say, I am not, and my entire, all my employees knew it. Like, all right, I'll hit you up again at 930. 
or 11 o'clock or 12 o'clock at night because you work into the night and it worked for me. So I would say try to find your balance. You know, that was the way I found balance. But everyone has a different way because if you don't find that balance, you will just get buried. And it, you know, it's tough to pull out of that. So let's talk about the funding of Financial Guard. Mm-hmm. You, you had some investors. How did you raise the? How did you raise the money? Was it through embedded relationships and, and a network you already had? Were they all new? If they were new, how did you convince them and persuade them that Financial Guard made sense for them as investors? Yeah. So the the initial investment came from an individual who had ties to the founders. Uh, after that, we went out and got. There was contacts we had with the private equity VC company out in Salt Lake City, and but we had to sell them on the concept. So they were one of our initial investors as well as the individual. And then we chose to continue going back to that investor, even though, you know, probably every three months I went out and talked to VCs because you never know when you're going to need money. And we were getting a lot of inbound interest. And so I, I spoke to all the VCs in town. I, I had a network out in San Francisco, Salt Lake City, New York. So if we ever needed money, I could probably pick up the phone and get it. Uh, I, th- I would encourage all of you, as startup CEOs, capital raising is, should always be a primary function. You know, especially if you're not you know, cash flow positive and you have a burn rate. Like that should be something that even if you're doing great and you have some money in the bank, always have that conversation going because you never know when you're going to need money. And, you know, I started watching a lot of people in the industry who we were competing with starting to raise tons of money, which is was one of the main reasons why I was always out there. Because, you know, if you want to compete and you're looking at, well, those guys just raised $50 million, how are we going to continue to have as cool a product as them. And then you realize, well, $50 million, you can burn through that quick and not do it efficiently. And I don't think you always have to raise a ton of money. You just have a business plan, make sure you understand, you know where you're going with that money and have a really good use of funds case. And there's money out there. It might not be here in Ohio all the time, but in the United States, there's so many resources and places you can go to get capital so be relentless in pitching for money so you i'm going to tie in your 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 funny um space story here um but financial guard sort of flew under the radar here for really your entire existence as a company until Mm -hmm. probably the the exit um we met through the, we met through the Columbus Chamber um, on on a council for for the chamber, um, and that was the first time that I had heard of Financial Guard. Oh, yeah. Even though you know I sort of hang out in the startup community and we do as as, as a firm, but you were you know you were had a significant operation in Salt Lake too, um, and so that it's an interesting uh, I think it's an interesting company as re- it relates to the Columbus startup community and ecosystem. Uh, because you were virtually an unknown commodity here for the entirety of the company's existence. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of it goes a little bit maybe to your office space in a retail, you know, strip oh, yeah. center um, where people thought that, you know, they could come in and, you know, maybe get a payday loan or something from you. So, we, we, yeah, the, <laughs> the office space was somewhat comical. So I, I live in Powell. And, you know, when you're starting to look for office space, I was like, let's just get space that's close to me because I'm going to be there all the time. So I knew one of the real estate guys, Vince Margello up there. I said, I, I need some space. He's like, oh, perfect. I just built, I uh, bought this strip center. And literally, I was like, perfect, 1,600 feet for $1,000 a month, I'm in. And so I had a yoga studio next to me and a nail salon on the other side. And my employees, so it's retail. And we would come in and just not lock the door behind us. And, you know, part of, I guess, me not being part of the ecosystem was my head was down. Literally, it was all in financial guard. So, you know, blame me for not being networked into the the entire startup ecosystem because I, I was a corporate guy who pretty much my job was in New York. So I was always on the road traveling. And then I went into startup world and 
I had this little strip center. I, we did finally make it look really cool because when we first went in, we, we got these old desks from Ohio State. Like, you can go down there and get really cheap furniture, guys. It's like $30 for, like, desk chair and everything, as long as you can carry desks that are from, like, 1960s. And so we set this whole office up. We have nothing on the walls. And the first time we put, like, decorated it was... Did the, you say that a reporter was coming to interview you or something? The Columbus uh, Dispatch. So, you know, it, we flew under the radar in Columbus, but probably in the first three months after launching. So we got selected for Finnovate. So anyone who knows FinTech, this is like the biggest like thing you can do in uh, financial technology is get accepted and present at Finnovate. So we had presented at Finnovate and got chosen as one of the startups. And about three to six months later, we were in the Wall Street Journal, Forbes. We had no PR budget, no marketing. And this was all just inbound in us being aggressive and sort of guerrilla marketing. And so the dispatch heard about us. And so they, you know, I went down there, they interviewed me. I was like, oh, cool. You're going to put us on, you know, the cover of the Sunday business edition. That's, that's neat. And the Thursday before they're like, Hey, Kevin, we want to come up to the office and take some pictures of the office. And I literally, I was just like, no, well, no one really comes to our office. <laughs> and and then I, I turned and said, hey, guys, we got to go to Hobby Lobby and get, and get some, like, cheap framed pictures and things to put around the office so this looks real. And it's not just, like, this, this ghetto office because they think we're a really cool company. And if you look at it, you know, you think of cool tech startup. You think in Google and some of the, my peers who raised tons of money, their offices look like Google because my employees would always be like, hey, why don't we go raise money so we can have like a bartender and a chef and all this cool stuff. I was like, it's a waste of money. I don't know, I don't know how to get away this, with this. Look at this place. What yeah. more could you want? Exactly. We can walk across the street to get smoothies every day. It's perfect. <laughs> get a manicure after work, yeah. right? Um, no, it's a, the, uh, the, 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 when Kevin told me about the whole space thing, and uh, didn't didn't the didn't the landlord eventually didn't, you you either needed more space or you wanted to put up a sign or something, and he just said something to the effect of, "Oh, give me another two hundred bucks a month, right?" And I'll uh, well, first he wanted us to pay two thousand dollars first because you think about it, he owns this strip center, he doesn't want to have this space look vacant, so he's like, "You got you got to put up a sign." I was like, well, we don't need a sign. We don't want people walking in here. And he was just like, well, it's only two grand. I was like, no, that's $2,000. This is early, like $2,000. I can find better things to do with that. So he actually bought the sign for us. (laughs) So, yeah, it's Financial Guard Global Headquarters right there. I think they just took it down for a – they're selling meat out of there now. (laughs) Perfect. Yes. Um, So – Let's talk about FinTech 71 some more. Yep. Um, so why get involved in it? Um, and what do you guys hope to accomplish through doing it? Yeah, no. So being that I wasn't involved in the ecosystem at all prior, I really want to help entrepreneurs in Columbus and the state of Ohio now. So after exiting, one of the things that uh, I wanted to do was do this again. You know, part of it for me, I want to prove that it wasn't just luck and that I can do this again. And there was a couple of other concepts and ideas that I have in my brain that I want to try to move forward over the next couple of years. And so I started talking to some people. And uh, Matt Armstead of Lumos was uh, a gentleman I had met probably about a year and a half earlier. And Gentleman you're using very generously yeah. in that case. <laughs> Ryan knows him well also. And so we, we started talking, and initially I wanted to just, you know, I'm going to try to start up three or four fintech companies. And, you know, if you can help out, that would be great. You know, it, we can advise them and things like that. And he had done some accelerator work. And then it turned out Jobs Ohio had been analyzing the fintech space uh, within the state, talking to a lot of the big financial services companies about this. And so they had hired a consultant. And there's some facts about Ohio, which I didn't even know prior to talking to Jobs Ohio. So Ohio is the sixth largest state when you think about financial services jobs in the United States. So this is a big, big you know, economy driver for the state. 
And if you think about the next 20 years, you're going to have traditional financial services jobs depletion. There's too much technology coming in. So the job replacement is going to be fintech companies. So the problem is there were no fintech companies. Financial Guard was here and no one even knew about us. But there really wasn't fintech companies in this state. And so Jobs Ohio wanted a way to get fintech companies in. And they, they saw a really huge success in Klarna. I don't know how many of you know about Klarna, the payments company. So this was a, a European fintech company that wanted to come into the U.S. And they decided to set up operations in Columbus. And since then, you know, they have goals to bring a couple of 100 employees within Ohio. So that's, that's a, you start looking at that and you're like, well, here's a fintech company that is going to be growing like a traditional financial services company. How can we get more of this? So that's Jobs Ohio, why they want to be involved. They're one of the, they really got this off the ground along with Matt, myself, and two other uh, gentlemen. And so Jobs Ohio is a financial backer initially. And then we went out to all of the big corporate financial services companies. So the Huntington's, the Granges, Key Corp, uh, those are three of our primary in-state sponsors. We went out of state. Visa is sponsoring us both financially and through mentorship. So those were the, the four starting point. And then we went out and got a host of others. So most of the big financial services companies within the state are now participating as sponsors or partners. Uh, you know, as I looked at, you know, as coming from the other side as a fintech CEO, you know, the big things that I wanted, you could always get capital, but, you know, to attract people to the state, to run them through an accelerator, capital is something everyone's looking for. So of all the cohort that we're bringing on, so we're going to bring 10 to 12 companies through, we're going to give them a $100,000 stipend. And that's coming from a nonprofit. This isn't a for-profit entity. So as we view this, this is a in a, a state of Ohio asset for the financial services community in a nonprofit form. And it's gonna be an evergreen structure, which is which is beautiful. This isn't gonna be a one year thing. Hopefully this is going on 20 years from now. And instead of just 10 to 12 companies, we're gonna have hundreds of companies that have come through here. And, but you know, going back to being the FinTech CEO, the biggest thing that I always wanted was access. You know, if, if I have a technology that is should fit in with J.P. Morgan Chase or fit in with a credit union, how do I get access to the CEO or the decision maker? And so that's why we went out and got all of these corporate sponsors or partners. You know, it's cool that they see all of the, the next-gen technology that could be transforming their industry. But the bigger thing is they're all committed to, say, if it's an insure tech company, Nationwide or Grange is going to be like, we'll be their first pilot. Bring it in here. We'll run it through. And if it works, great. We'll try to find a way to adopt it. If not, we'll tell them what they need to do in order to work with us in the future. And to me, that's, that's going to be the biggest benefit for entrepreneurs is having all of the, this corporate support behind them. And I think we're going to be able to create a fintech ecosystem that competes beyond New York and Silicon Valley because they're, they're not as focused. They're just trying to do, bring cool technology into the world. This is very, very focused around fintech. And I, I think we have all the makings to do something really neat. So if a company is going to participate in Fintech 71, what can they expect as an outcome and what are you guys looking for as outcomes? Is it that they get they get follow-on funding? Mm -hmm. Is it that they acquire their first three customers? What are you guys sort of looking at as as criteria of is this working or not working? Yeah, the, the, the first one is exactly what we want to do. So most accelerators, if you think about traditional accelerators, they're taking a concept and getting you to like an MVP and maybe your first angel round. With FinTech 71, at least this first cohort, we're looking for companies that have a product or a concept that is pretty vetted out. And then we want to get these companies into a big Series A. And, uh, you know, I think we can do that with the corporate support. Uh, many of these companies that are supporting us, they have venture arms today. So if you think about Nationwide, I think they just announced a $100 million venture arm. J.P. Morgan Chase has a lot more than that behind them. So they may get a strategic investor 
or we're going to be opening doors to them in the the broader investor community. Um, we are globally sourcing deals and companies, so this isn't just companies that are based in Ohio. So we are looking at similar to Klarna, bringing startup fintech companies that are potentially in the UK or in Europe or Asia and want to set up here in the US and go into the US market, they are a good fit for FinTech 71 as well. So, you know, there's not a, you know, in the box company that we're looking for, but this first cohort, we're looking for companies that are a little further along that we can really help with the mentorship and get them to the next level. Do you see a point where you guys maybe even have your own fund as part of it, where some of the corporate venture arms that you just become LPs in a sort of FinTech 71 fund potentially? We've already started looking at that. So, you know, my ideal would be having a 50 to $100 million fund sitting right alongside FinTech 71 where they can get their first Series A. And I think that would be beneficial to the entire community. You know, not not to knock Columbus or Ohio in general, but we need more sources of capital, not uh, the same two or three spots where if you hit the wall, suddenly there's nowhere else to go. You know, having multiple sources of capital is going to be key. You know, not to say you can't get on a plane and go somewhere else, but I just think that's what creates an ecosystem is having exits, having People like myself, hopefully there's 50 Kevin Palmers who want to give back to the community from a mentorship, capital, be an investor. And then that really spurs what we're trying to create here. So and uh, proof that people are applying a- across the globe, I emailed Matt and Alex over the weekend, um, somebody from Georgia, uh, not the state Georgia, but the former Soviet Republic um, Georgia um, contacted me and said, hey, we're interested in applying to FinTech 71, us hashtagging the hell out of this around FinTech, right? They must have, you know, found me somehow. Um, so I made that referral to, to Matt. So there are companies around the globe applying to FinTech 71, which I think is just an awesome thing for Columbus as an ecosystem and a place that more companies like Klarna or even younger companies, because I think even when they set up shop here, they already were like a valued at like a seven hundred fifty million or something they, like they that. They were on their way to unicorn. Yeah, and now they're they're a billion dollar company um, in total valuation. So, um, yeah, it's cool. It's happening. Oh, um, it's definitely happening. I was I was in Copenhagen with FinTech seventy one for Money twenty twenty, which is a big FinTech conference, and the interest of these European fintechs. They're like, wow, Ohio. You start laying out all these statistics. And it's a really nice place to live. And your dollar goes so much further. And you have access to all of these banks and insurance companies. And suddenly they're looking at it like, well, why would I go to San Francisco? Like San Francisco is not a financial services hub. It's a startup hub. Ohio is a financial services hub, which that's the story we got to get out there into the marketplace. And that's what we're trying to do. Yeah. Questions for Kevin? Yeah, Ron. I, I think we can compete with New York. And I'm from New York. Like, born and raised, that's my favorite place on the planet. When you look at a startup, you are going to have to raise a ton of money to get a startup off the ground in New York, where you can go right here. You have talent that you can get out of Ohio State and all the universities in Ohio. You have access to all these financial services brands right here in Ohio. You could get a space and a strip center. I was going to say, you can, you, your cost of living is so much less. So if you wanted to do it, I think this is a better place to try to do it. There's, I can jump on a plane and do anything I need to do in New York without having to spend 
all that amount of money on rent, all that amount of money on salaries, which just increases your burn rate substantially. And I've never understood, it's, it's geographic arbitrage. Like, why are you trying to do a startup in the most expensive places in the United States? Doing, do them somewhere else and get on a plane to do your business in those other areas. And that's, I truly fundamentally believe in that. So yes, we can definitely, I think we are the leader when you start thinking about it from a Midwest standpoint. You know, I don't view Indianapolis or Nashville or Des Moines or St. Louis as competitors to Ohio. It's not Columbus. This is, this is the entire state that's gotten themselves around this. And there's no reason we can't start competing with New York entities. So that's me being, me being optimistic, but I, I can tell you, you know, there's a really cool New York fintech startup that most likely will be selected for this accelerator. We haven't gone through all of them, but just early on, they spent a lot of time with us and they want to come out here. And there's probably three fintech accelerators they can go through in New York City if they chose to. So a lot of it, it's education. Uh, there'll, there'll definitely be a few. I have, we, the application process closes at midnight tonight. So we, we haven't gone through all of them. Uh, so I, so you still have time. Yeah, you still have time. If anyone has a cool concept, Travis is nodding his head back there because it, it's not something you're going to knock out in an hour, but <laughs> we want to understand your organization this is it's beneficial for everyone if you haven't gone through an accelerator application it's good just to go through it to start thinking about your business that way it'll help you raise money it'll help you with your pitch you know helps you internalize what your business is uh but so we're gonna have probably a few hundred applications to go through to get down to 10 or 12 uh, I've already taken a sneak peek at a few of them that have applied over the last few weeks. So we have a few uh, blockchain, cryptocurrency uh, firms in there, which are all doing something really unique. Yeah, I, I like that space. I think broadly, you know, that space can do some wild things when you start thinking about just monetary policy and stuff like that. But yeah, it's a, it's a neat space. Very early in its infancy stage, though. I'd like to push down our terminology of uh, fintech into two different areas, if we could. One, sort of new products or ways of doing things like um, blockchain, and then the other side of just presenting it differently to customers, whether it's something like insurance or you know, I don't like how my auto loan is serviced. I want to do X, Y, and Z online in a more appealing way. Mm-hmm. So, so I, I sat in a corporation, and I, I think once you get too big, bureaucracy hinders innovation big time. And the other thing is the incentives of a corporation, where once you get up to the management ranks where you are making those decis decisions for innovation, that seat you're sitting in is worth hundreds of thousands of dollars or not millions. So why are you going to take a risk that could put that seat in jeopardy. And that, that's sort of the really blunt way of saying that's why I don't think a lot of these organizations do what they should be doing from an innovation standpoint because they have all of the resources to do it. They have smart people. They have capital. They know exactly the best way to do things. But that hinders it on that front. The, the other, and you have these fiefdoms that, you know, you have this internal politics and that's why things don't get done. Uh, the, the other aspect is the financial services companies, they're making money. Like my, my old company, I think they're in route to make like 25 to $30 billion in net income. That's not revenue. That is profit. So why would you change anything? 
unless you're really forward looking and saying, wow, if we don't change, we're not going to make $25 billion next year, then you will change. And that takes time, though, to evolve. That's not something that's going to happen overnight. And so that that's probably why you don't see a lot of financial services companies. They're all, you know, going into it a little bit and they're, they're partnering and some of them will buy, but they're not trying to transform their entire business overnight. It'll happen over time though, without a doubt. But as the follower, uh, yeah, they'll always be the follower. Yeah. Without a doubt. Why, why, why? There's, there's almost no incentive for them to lead. Not, none at right? all. Not, none at all. And that's, that's where we come in. The entrepreneurs that look at it and say, you know something, I have incentive to take a risk and change something because I might create a, an amazing company or I may get acquired. Like there, there's an, in, that's the whole part of being a startup entrepreneur is to take those risks. Because you've already stepped away from hundreds of thousands of dollars <laughs> in that seat. Yeah, John. Yeah, uh, so so I'm not with Financial Guard anymore, and I think anytime your your baby gets acquired by a big organization, they may not just follow the vision that you once had. So you you have to make that decision of do I want to stay on with the organization, even though you may bastardize my technology or take it down a road that's beneficial to your corporation rather than you know, beneficial to consumers. And that, that I'm not saying that happened with Financial Guard, but a lot of times that's what happens to these fintech companies when they get acquired. So, you know, it's, it, it's a hard thing, I think, probably for most CEOs of a startup to stay on for an extended period of time in a big corporation because it's very different. And I, I lived both sides. So... You know, I, I think, you know, if you looked at this statistically and I've never tracked it, you don't see a lot of them stay on in the corporation for very long. They're on to their next thing. No, <laughs> you, you, we had to educate. So it, it, it's amazing because we developed this product and literally when I, when I say it was so cool and brought so much transparency, like you were able to aggregate all your investment accounts into one place, you know, through aggregation technology. We analyzed all your investments. We, showed, we graded every investment in the United States. We had like a big data, data component. So, you know, we would take all of your large cap equities and force rank them, you know, better than Morningstar and Lipper were doing in our eyes. And then we also showed you how much, so you were unoptimized from an investment standpoint. Then we showed you how much you were paying for your investment advice. And in some cases it was like, we'd, we'd ask them like, did you know you were paying $16,000 to your next door neighbor? who has you in the most unoptimal portfolio we've ever seen. And he'd be like, oh, wow, I never knew that, but I, he's my friend. And we're like, you're getting ripped off. <laughs> like, and even then, some people wouldn't change. And so, you know, it's this weird, you know, to get people to think about financial service and investment advice, and then to change away from what they're doing is hard. And it's based off of like trust, that's, it's a trust game, and that's where financial services companies, it's, we, they, they play this whole trust game. If I watch commercials on TV, all I see is like, families walking on the beach, and we're going to be there for every life moment, but you're taking 5% of their investments. Like, it's like craziness. And you're like, but if I expose that, won't you change? And it doesn't always happen, and I, initially. It's, you're starting to see a trend where more and more people are now going to it, but it's not that I built it and they will come. You have this in, 
you know, every time we were in a media publication like a Kiplinger or a Wall Street Journal or Bloomberg talking about what we did, someone would read it and be like, I'm going to try it out. And then they might tell some people. And we had customers say, I am telling every single person at my church or every single person on my block because I cannot believe that this is how the industry operates. And I would literally sit there and my customer service people would say the same thing. It's not the advisor or it's not, you know, their ethics. This is just the industry. This is how the incentives are built in this industry. So it's nothing to do with like human beings. It's just how the game's played. But, you know, it takes time to evolve. And I don't know if I think the hybrid solution for the next 10 to 15 years is probably going to be the solution. Exactly. The early stage, yo, we had a lot of it was chat. And then we built some early, early stage like AI where we can answer questions based off of the questions that came in. So, you know, that's that's rudimentary AI from where people are going now, where it's now Siri and it's machine learning. So it gets better and better. But, uh, you know, I, I think it's going to be an evolution of getting away from humans and traditional financial service salespeople into that 100% digital. Isn't part of the issue that as uh, creatures, we're sort of afraid of money because yeah. most of us don't really understand it very well. Most of us have not never really been educated in how money works and how the markets work. So... We we we, ha- we have this we we grow up and then even as adults we have this sort of fear of money and financial services and we just want someone who's going to come and sort of give us a big hug and walk and hold our hand on the beach right because we think that they're at least friendly and since we're sort of in fear of this whole thing anyway a friend holding our hand on the beach is better than us just cowering in fear oh one hundred percent. Americans are financially illiterate people. And this was something we were trying to correct. We had this whole financial guard education series that was doing educational blogging and sending people updates on a weekly basis in order to educate people. You know, I, I look at my family, you know, my three sisters, my mom, my dad, every single person in my family has a master's degree and or a lawyer's. And if I ask them basic personal financial management or investing questions, they have no idea. And so that's really highly educated people that I have no idea. Now go to the masses of America and, you, you know, think about it. You work. There's no more defined benefit plans are going away. So you, everyone's saving for their own retirement. So you should be a very literate in investing because this is something you have to do. And people just didn't know what they should be doing. That's one of the reasons why we built this. We're going to do it for you. But people still want that human being, that trusted advisor. It would be beautiful if the advisor could always be trusted. But, you know, a computer can be, especially a transparent computer. So you, you take out the conflicts of interest, and that's the future. I don't want to end on a down note. So, Tiffany, uh, please ask a question that's going to end us on a high and not talking about how we're incompetent creatures. Go. That's a lot of pressure. What do you think about um, the peer-to-peer space within fintech versus Mm -hmm. the expert-to-client space? I I think there's potential. I think uh, the expert-to-client, let's call peer-to-peer lending. Uh, for instance, it'll get there, but it's going to take a lot of data behind the scenes and betting to make sure that you're going to get your money back when you lend. And that's where banks and insurance companies, they are truly, they're data monsters, where they have analyzed data and risk for so many years that they got it down to a science and peer to peer is not there yet. It'll get there. But you just need a lot more data to flow through there to really manage the default side. Everything's investable. You know, every, every fintech concept is investable. Uh, it's just you, you really have to do your diligence. Whether you're an individual 
person that's adopting these fintech solutions or you're going to be an investor in a fintech company you just have to understand the risks because listen there there's there's risk in any investment and these are it's not as easy as just going into the market and i'm going to do peer-to-peer lending because there's a lot of a lot of different things you have to understand which i do think the banks and insurance companies do really well at and i don't mean to big financial services companies do so much for the community consumers and you know i i probably came across a little negative on that front but at at the end of the day i think they can do better with a lot of the solutions fintech companies are bringing to the table please help me thank kevin for coming and joining us thanks brian Thanks for listening to this Startup Brand Columbus event podcast. We will be back next month with more entrepreneurial experiences and insights. Thanks again to our lead partners, AWH and Rev1 Ventures. Visit startupgrind.com forward slash Columbus to see our future events and to see videos of past ones. Until next time, keep grinding.